This podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. I create five hours of content a week or a month, sorry, for free. Um, if you'd like to give me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee, please do. If you want to continue listening for free, do that as well. Thank you. Dear Gwit, you steaming keens. What is the crack with you? <laughs> you delicious, delicious shower of pricks. How are you getting on? Did you have a good week? I had a magnificent week. I bought myself a steel carbon, steel carbon, or no, carbon steel frying pan, which is something I've been wanting to get for ages. Because I've been using Teflon. Or T-Fell or whatever the fuck you call it. For years. And they're grand like. But as soon as the non-stick coating goes. You're fucked you know. You have to throw it away. And you're continually just buying new frying pans. So I'm like. I want to use what the chefs use. Which is like either cast iron or carbon steel. And technically if you get a carbon steel frying pan. You should have it for life. If you look after it. You can have it for fucking life. And... You're not allowed to wash them, first of all. You have to wipe them clean. And the steel has to undergo this continual process known as seasoning where you get the pan really, really hot and the grease in the pan kind of burns itself into the steel, creating a perpetual non-stick surface. And you can fuck the frying pan into the oven and whatever. And what it's great for is searing meat in particular. Like if you're cooking burgers or a steak, if you've got a carbon steel fucking pan or a cast iron pan you can roast the heat up and it will caramelize the meat so you get maximum taste but you can't you have to be careful you don't put acidic stuff into it like tomatoes or anything vinegary because that can strip away that seasoning but i've seen videos on youtube of people with like cast iron or carbon steel pans that were passed down to them from their fucking grandparents i've seen a lad with a cast iron pan covered in rust he scrubbed all the rust off and then seasoned it and it was as good as new so I was like yeah fuck it I'll give it a go give it a go fuck t 2018 that's my new my new my new thing for 2018 now I'm looking forward to today's podcast because I have uh, a roasting hot take that I can't fucking wait to get into I can't wait to speak about it Um. A really kind of, you know, a f- conspiracy theory, basically. A re- it's, this is going to be a real pinch us all podcast, an entertaining podcast. But I'm looking forward to doing it. But before I get into the hot take, um, because you know the other thing as well, I think this hot take is going to be quite long, so I don't think I'm going to get answer fucking get to answer your questions at the end, and. Looking through, we'll say, the DMs that I get sent all the time from ye, asking me questions. By far, the question that I get asked the most is, how do I deal with online criticism or online trolls or whatever, you know? Mainly from people going, you know, how do I deal with it? And from creative people going, how do, how do you deal with it? 
because a lot of a lot of ye that listen to this are either musicians or fucking painters or work in theatre or whatever somehow creative it tends to be a lot of creative people that listen to this podcast and you're always asking me how do I deal with it I also get an awful lot of online shit I do Um, not because I'm a cunt but because it's just it's proportionate to the size of your audience like there's 250,000 of you that listen every week and then between Twitter and Facebook and the whole lot of nearly 700,000 followers so that's a lot of people so I would have a lot of um, critics we'll say online I'd, I'd, rec- I'd be on the I'd be on the end of a lot of hatred and it's part of the job it is 100% part of the job that's it it's you know it's like playing a video game if you're playing a video game you, you, you expect there to be obstacles in it sure it's not a game without the obstacles and I've been doing this I've been online putting out creative work since I'd say nearly 2004 online anyway and even back then dealing with fucking negativity and criticism you know so you have to learn to embrace it as part of the process but I will answer that because again it's just people keep fucking asking me and here's the thing too and this is why this is so important if you are not even a creative person but someone who's doing anything whereby you're kind of invested in it and you're open to critique whereby the risk of putting something out there means that you may get critiqued Um, it's important to kind of speak about it because the biggest obstacle I find, right, and this is with people I've met and people I know who are artists or creatives or whatever, aside from finances, okay, because some people can't be fucking artists because their day job just overtakes it and they have no time or energy to create. But aside from finance, the second greatest obstacle to a creative person is actually having the courage to do the work okay people that I know that are quite disappointed or who let many years go past without realising their creative goals the reason it happened is the fear of trying the fear of making the attempt in the first place and continual procrastinating has led to five missing years we'll say or ten missing years of no creative work And often the fear is, what if people don't like it? And if the platform you're putting it out on is the fucking internet, chances are people are not going to like it and they're going to tell you. Do you know what I mean? So, healthily recognising and embracing it is essential. I tweeted during the week, I said, there's two types of critic that you'll face online if you create people who genuinely don't like what you do they usually express it through disinterest right now that's the first type of person who's going to critique you online people who actually you know whatever it is you make you have to accept some people are actually going to think it's shit in their experience of reality and in their personal aesthetics that thing that you're doing that you might love to someone else is actual shit 
and that's fine that's okay because think of something that you don't like that others love I adore Bob Dylan I know loads of people that think he is shite none of us are right or wrong I'm right for me they're wrong for them so number one accept that people are going to think that you are shit however most people that think you're shit it, they tend to experience it as, as a disinterest they just they walk past your work do you know what I mean they just walk past it they, they're, they're so uninspired by what you or I have created that they can't even be arsed writing shit online about it that's how little of an impact you made so accepting that that's going to be the case for some people it's a very healthy part of a creative process the opposite of that would be thinking that everyone needs to like your stuff it's impossible fucking impossible what's the only thing that everyone likes is oxygen that's it everyone loves oxygen aside from that people are going to have a problem with something now the second type of person you will actually within the category of A you will also get people who critique you who just well meaning when well meaning people usually I get to every week I'll get a mail off one of ye and ye'll say to me uh, blind boy I'm a fan of your stuff but I listened to the podcast last week and that thing you said I disagree with or I loved the podcast from two weeks ago but I just didn't like last week's podcast it didn't do it for me and I get a lot of those mails and to be honest I don't even feel that as criticism that's just one of ye mailing me in a very kind of nice amicable way and having a conversation and I'm open to that and that's actually quite constructive that's constructive criticism that's like thanks for letting me know and I encourage you to do that as well if like there's some podcasts that you love and other ones you're not mad about just fucking let me know and I can tailor it to suit ye we've had that going from the start so that's the A criticism but then the B criticism and that's begrudgers, right? Now you have to be careful as well, because you see this a lot online. People will, creative people, can protect themselves from criticism by labeling everyone who has a problem with their work as a begrudger. Don't fall into that fucking trap, because it's an illusion, okay? You must accept that some people are going to not like what you do, and that's okay. But. Begrudgers are a thing. They're real. They exist. You can tell a begrudger by their obsessiveness, to be honest. Do you know? The person who online, if they're criticising your work, it's, it's, if, if their critique is unnecessarily mean or unnecessarily nasty or if it's very public and they're clearly doing it to get likes or retweets do you know <coughs> like I said there before when I get good criticism off ye it tends to be through direct messages it tends to be a more private thing there's no sense of threat to it but begrudgers will be more public about it they want other people to see it to either get retweets or likes or whatever the important thing to remember about begrudgers and this is why you can generally dismiss them a begrudger is somebody who you, you're it's it's not it's not jealousy 
right? A begrudger isn't jealous of what you're doing. They, they don't necessarily want to be in your position or in my position. A begrudger is someone who your attempt at creativity, right? Your very act of trying unconsciously reminds them of their own failure or most likely their own fear of trying. Okay, so you, you, you even drawing that picture or putting up that song or fucking hosting that nightclub night or whatever it is you're doing, you doing that has reminded them of the part of themselves that would love to do something similar but they're too scared and it's you know what are you going to do with that emotion most people aren't going to straight up take ownership of that and go do you know what I need to kick myself up the arse that's not what happens what happens is that it's experienced as a, as a sense of hurt the hurt then transforms itself into anger towards the object or person or thing that reminded them so begrudgery exists too you gotta just fucking accept it and don't compassion try and have compassion towards the begrudger now by, by compassion I don't mean contact him and say I understand your pain what I mean is what would be uncompassionate would be to get into an argument with the begrudger like I will never fucking argue with someone like that just don't bother like it, think of it in real life imagine you're at home enjoying a cup of tea watching television someone knocks on your door and decides to start talking shit about the job you did earlier on what would you do like you're either going to box them into the head or you can just fucking shut the door do you know what? that's what you do with begrudgers you shut the door in their face because it's not constructive criticism it's kind of meanness and I used to I used to leave them off on the grounds of free speech um, I used to think look fuck it even if someone's been nasty to me online I'll continue to let them do it because it will thicken my skin but I remember there was one person and, it was, they, they, and once a month for about four years I just noticed that every single thing they kind of tweeted at me was a really mean stab and after four years I said and every time they'd do it as well I'd actually get kind of hurt by it a small bit hurt by it and then I said to myself holy fuck I'm being bullied I'm being bullied so I blocked them and there's no shame in blocking people it depends on, on the context but if, if someone's actually if you're a grown adult and someone's trying to bully you. If you roll around in the mud with them and argue. That's just going to make yourself worse. Because you're fucking arguing with someone online over a lot of bullshit. A lot of personal bullshit that has to do with them. Just block them and get on with your day. They've knocked at your door. Knocked at your door. Said your haircut is shit. Close the door on their face. Go back to your cup of tea. Fuck it. It is grand. And the other thing to remember as well about... If you're the type of person that's like, I just can't do it. I have to get into an argument with this person who's talking shit. If you're that person, you're like, I have to get into an argument. Here's a good approach, a compassionate approach to the person who's being mean. When that person is highly critical of your work and being very nasty and very mean, right? That's how mean they are to themselves when they try and create. 
that's why they're in the situation whereby they're being nasty to you online because they're so fucking hard on themselves they try and they think about doing that thing they want to do and they just don't because their inner monologue is vicious and brutal towards them and that same viciousness and brutality is directed at you when you try and create and when you think of it that way it's quite easy to have compassion then you know to have compassion for them and go fuck it they're probably pretty sad I know they're calling me a prick and they're being really mean but ultimately it's a line with a thorn in, their, in, in its paw so I'm not going to fucking sword fight with it but I will walk away there's nothing wrong with walking away so just walk away block them that's what the block button is for because and here's the other thing if you're a professional artist right if, if, if you're or semi-professional if your art if you earn income from your art then you have to look after your emotional well-being because if you're going online which you have to do like I have to check online every day I have to check who's talking about me all of this stuff just to keep my business going and if you're doing that and you're seeing a huge amount of people being mean to you then that can actually affect how well you do your job and earn money like how are you supposed to go and paint or create a song or write a story if you've just read 10 people being horrible and what that's known as is it's, it's, it's emotional labour that's the emotional labour of your work Okay, and emotional labour is, it's a phrase that gets disused a lot online. Um, but what it really refers to, we'll say in Marxist terms, emotional labour is, I don't know, people who work in the service industry, for instance. Do you know, if, like I used to work on, I used to work in a call centre years ago. And one of the toughest parts of the job of working in a call centre was, regardless of how I felt inside having to be nice to someone on the phone all the time incredibly fucking draining really draining that is emotional labour Um, my emotion there is that's what I'm getting paid for essentially badly paid for so if I'm fucking listening to cunts online being you know behaving like shitheads towards me and I allow that to affect me. That's emotional fucking labour. So I gotta walk away from it because if I take too much of it on board, because the thing is, like, we're all human beings. I'm a fucking human being, and it's the daily struggle to have an internal locus of evaluation and to not allow aspects of my behaviour to define my value as a human being. That's a daily struggle. That's something I work on, but. Actually, to use a metaphor, um, the fucking frying pan earlier. Now, I know I was talking about that for a fucking reason. That's flow in action now. That frying pan that I have, the carbon steel frying pan. Like like I said, that frying pan is non-stick. Assuming I season it maybe once a month or whatever. I have to continually look after and service that frying pan and put effort in so that it becomes non-stick okay but if I don't put that effort in 
then it stops being non-stick, it starts to rust, and the frying pan is no, no longer impervious to water or liquids, and it rusts. And it's the exact same with my emotional well-being. If I want online criticism to roll off and to not affect me, I have to work on it. It's not autonomous. I have to work on numerous things so that I can get to that state. I have to season myself like I'm a fucking cast iron pan or or a carbon steel pan. But autonomously, you know, taking it back to the transaction analysis that we were speaking about a few weeks ago, when I see someone online being particularly mean, sometimes it depends. It depends on the type of criticism. Like a lot of my uh, fucking people who criticize me online about 80% of them, they just really don't like me because I'm kind of liberal or because I said the word feminism a couple of times. I genuinely don't give a fuck about those people because they fucking... Their anger is interchangeable. They're just as angry with me and we'll say they're angry with Una Malali as well or they're angry with Russell Brand. I don't give a fuck about them. That's interchangeable. It doesn't affect me. It's the more kind of personal stuff that I don't really like. But... I'm a human being, so like, I'm insecure, I like getting approval from other people, um, I like when other people approve of me, I experience it as hurtful when people disapprove of me, and my mental health journey and struggle is to keep that under wraps, to keep it in check, so that it, it doesn't, so that I'm, I don't want irrational levels of approval, or that I'm not irrationally getting very upset by disapproval. So when I see mean shit, sometimes it actually hurts. And I can't afford that. I gotta fucking walk away from it, you know? And I gotta check in at myself and I gotta go, no, that's that person's opinion or that's that person's pain. Do you know? And I have I have a responsibility to my fucking work. And I'll say it again, I've said it I've said it before. If you don't want if you don't want to feel the hurt of negative criticism, you can't suck your own dick too much with the positive uh, praise. And it's as simple as that. If you do something good and you get a lot of praise from people and you take this on board to mean that you are now a good person, if you place your happiness in that praise, that's all well and good. It feels lovely. But when the negativity comes around, you haven't protected yourself. And the key is the mantra, no aspect of my behavior, and that includes your artwork, your creativity, no aspect of your behavior can define your value as a human being. And that's what I try and tell myself. So most of the time, criticism is kind of water off a duck's back. Um, and most of my fucking critics as well, they're like... Because, you know, if someone's talking shit, you might look at their fucking Facebook or whatever. Or their Instagram or their Twitter. They just tend to be lads who actually like the same fucking shit as me. They're lads who are like... I'd look at their profile and I'd actually be thinking... Jesus, you should actually listen to my podcast because... I just noticed there you were talking about disco. I did a full podcast about disco. Or something like that. And... Again, what it is, is they're... You, they tend to be men. I tend not to get a lot of female fucking critics for some reason. Now, I know girls 
get criticism from other girls a lot. I just don't get a lot of shit from women. I don't know why. But the lads that do, it's like I'm looking at their stuff going, fucking hell, we're interested in the same shit. Why do you dislike me so much? And then you'd go, all right, okay, oh, I noticed you'd like to be a writer. Or there's no evidence of it. Or you'd like to be a musician. Or you'd like to be a painter. And then I see it. It's like, they don't fucking hate me at all. It's just, I remind them of the part of themselves that won't try because of failure. And that must be very tough. Do you get me? And what it is too, actually, is one trend I find with serial procrastinators are people who are tend to talk a lot about becoming an artist or you know writing that album or writing that book or doing that exhibition what a trend you tend to find with them is they focus on reasons why successful people became successful through in an easy way they would look at someone and go or oh, they became successful because their uncle works in RTE or or that person became successful because they have rich parents or that person became successful because they're from Dublin they live in Dublin and if you live in Dublin it's easier to become successful you'll find that narrative a lot searching for the reasons why other people were successful in their craft because they had it easy and yes that fucking exists that's a real thing there there are successful people out there who had a lot of fucking advantages whether it be nepotism or money or whatever that's a real thing does happen just not all the time I mean for me you know if I was a woman I could multiply the criticism I get by about four or five times so the fact that I'm a lad has definitely been an advantage to me especially being outspoken in my career I do get shit but not as much as I'd get if I was a a woman and I see this with just female friends of mine that are artists holy fuck the shit that they get is ridiculous I don't have to deal with that so I've had that advantage but back to the kind of begrudgery and and obsessive non-evidence based narrative of unfairness and it's it's a way to procrastinate because then you can tell yourself the reason I don't have that book written or that album done or that painting painted is because uh it's the environment is unfair and lads who are very similar to me in terms of their interests or the part of the country they're from or that if they see me actually doing well for myself it's a reminder of oh fuck maybe he actually just worked really hard oh shit maybe he conquered his demons and he actually tried tried he attempted he attempted and had a go at it and it worked out fuck that means that I actually can have a go at it, but I'm too scared and I don't want to accept that. It's too painful for me to accept it. So I'm going to get furious with the cunt. Do you know? I could have fucking gone that way myself. I could have easily gone that way. And it's when I look at something like my book that I just wrote. You know, I'm fairly fucking proud of that. But again, I watch myself. And this can be the same for you if, you, if you've done a piece of work that you're proud of. What I try and take pride in with my book, it's not necessarily that the book gets, you know, has sold well or gets good praise. 
what I take pride in is when I, when I wrote that book or when I write a song or do anything, I have to battle fiercely with my insecurities and my fear of failure and the voice inside me that tells me that I'm not good enough, that tells me that don't sit down to write today, you're going to fail and they're going to laugh at you. I fight that voice and I go, no, I'm going to try and I'm going to give it my best and it might fail and that's okay because failure is good. So when I look at my book, I'd be proud of it for that reason, the process. I conquered personal demons to do it and and tomorrow when I write, I'm still going to have to conquer the same demons and that's the success of it. Not necessarily if it's sold well or whatever. Because you don't as well, art art is fucking, and this is the thing I spoke about in last week's podcast, we have a tendency to commodify and, and, monet, uh, and monetize art in terms of value and money, and it's like, fuck that, everyone should be creating something, right, even if it's a colouring book, and do it for the process and the joy of doing it. If you can make money out of it, fucking brilliant, then you're a professional artist and isn't that great. But what if your day job is just, you know, something that has nothing to do with creativity and then in the evening creativity is your way of looking after mental health. You're creating for the sake of it. Everyone should be looking at it that way, even if you're a professional artist. And if you make money out of it, great, that's the bonus. So, yeah, that is my response. That's too long a fucking response. Now, what's that? 25 fucking minutes and I still have... A big long, a, a big long hot take to do. So uh, yeah, I answered that at the fucking start because I didn't think I'd have time at the end to answer any questions. So that is the. I probably got about five questions this week. How do you deal with criticism? So I've answered all five in one. Yort. Now onto the boiling hot, steaming, stinking take. So I'm gonna start off by having a bit of a stab at gin. Now, I've spoken about gin, I think, three times on this podcast because it's it's just fucking, it's a fascinating spirit. It's historically, it's fucking fascinating. Um, it, it's the first spirit to be industrially produced, do you know? When it came to London in the Industrial Revolution, it was like heroin. It destroyed the city. It created pathological alcoholism on a level that humanity hadn't seen. Because humans were drinking beer and spirits were this very rare thing that only kings and princes drank. But the average person on the street did not drink gin. 17th, 18th century, gin was being made in factories. Everyone had it. It destroyed fucking London. Very fascinating. Also, you know, gin is gin became a thing because William of Orange, you know, the Orange Man King, King Billy, he was a Dutchman. Gin was originally called Gen- Geneva. It was a Dutch spirit. And when King Billy was ruling England and fucking Ireland, he promoted gin as this English drink. You know, it wasn't Geneva anymore. It was an English drink, gin, because fuck brandy. Brandy is for the French, and this is the time of colonial empire. So I'm fascinated with gin. But gin is having a massive resurgence at the moment. It's everywhere, okay? And now I don't have, like, I love a fucking gin and tonic. 
and I'm not one of these hipsters too that's like you know give me sh- simple Schweppes tonic and Gardens gin in a normal glass with a slice of lemon I find that bland I like whatever gin is gone elderflower tonic in one of those big stupid glasses with a lot of fruit and some ice I like that because I'm a cocktail boy so I've no problem with that I think it's a good thing but gin is it's a 90% of it is a fucking scam it's a real real scam there's bottles of craft gin right loads of them right the market is flooded with craft gin and you can buy bottles of this shit 60-70 euro for a bottle of craft gin you're being robbed you're being ripped off I'll tell you why gin is it's mostly just grain alcohol straight up alcohol that can take a weekend to make like vodka and then it's soaked in botanicals which are just herbs and spices nettles that's all gin is then it's put into this fancy bottle and it's sold to you for 60 quid as craft gin you're spending 40-50 quid there on a fucking bottle okay the only thing that should cost 60-70 quid spirit is a drink that's taken 30-40 years to age that's it's okay to spend money on that you're buying it's heritage it's taken decades to make it's that's a different story but craft gin is marketing itself alongside spirits that have taken 30 40 years to make and you're being fucking robbed it's bullshit absolute horseshit so that's my gripe with gin but here's the thing here's here's where i get hot takey why has this happened all of a sudden who are these fucking gin companies where are they coming from well here's the thing and this isn't really a hot take because a lot of them are quite honest and open about it but these new gin companies these craft gin companies they are distilleries that they buy they either make the grain alcohol or they buy it from fucking Poland or the Ukraine and bottle it but what they want to be are whiskey companies that's what they want to be so now in 2018 they're selling you bullshit gin for 60 quid but their whiskey has just gone into the barrel now what whiskey is essentially I might be wrong um, whiskey is just again a straight cleared grain alcohol that's put into a barrel of wood that sherry used to be aged in and over the course of time the wood changes the taste and colour of the grain alcohol into whiskey and you open it up in 30 years or 20 years and there's your whiskey that's a craft process thousands of years old that's worth money these gin companies their whiskey has just gone into the barrel they're waiting 30 years and they're selling you bullshit packaged gin to line their pockets to keep themselves sustained as a company until the gin is ready to consume now this is where we start getting conspiracy theorists this is me going a bit mad why do I think they're doing this I think they they're looking at new emerging markets specifically in my opinion North Korea right South Korea right South Korea is a country that recently enough exposed to capitalism you know during the Korean War, Korea was divided between North and South. South is a very westernised country. They consume massive amounts of alcohol. They have a huge appetite for Western spirits because they're 
they're kind of like a little America, you know, and they place great kind of cultural value in Irish whiskies. So a lot of Irish whiskies export to South Korea. I think these gin companies know that with, we'll say, the relations between North Korea and the West are the best they've ever been, it's fair to say. I think North Korea is going to open itself up to a free market like South Korea has. I think that's going to happen in the next 10, 20 years. And I think the gin companies and the whiskey companies know this too. And I think what they want to do, they want to be selling Irish whiskey to North Korea in 30 years when the whiskey's ready and when the market is free and they'll have this huge new billion fucking euro empire to take advantage of. Because Kim Jong, the last Kim Jong, not the current one, like he fucking, I don't know, was it Jameson or was it Hennessy? But he used to keep like, I think it was Hennessy, but he bought like 50% of their stock just for his personal supply. Do you know, they love their spirits, but they don't have access to them. So I think that's what's happening. They're playing the long ball. That bit, that's my hot take. That is, I have pulled that out of my hole and it is just opinion. The gin companies selling you bullshit so that they can become whiskey companies, that's the truth. You can ask them, they'll tell you. So on to hot take number two, that it's kind of similar, you know. The thing with the gin is like, it's gin now. Right, we're taking a risk because we think it's going to pay off in 30, 40 years. Where else is that happening? On a much larger, possibly more sinister scale. But this process of waiting decades is most closely echoed in the online heritage and DNA business, right? Um, sites like fucking... Ancestry.com Specifically 23andMe And You know what? What is this This is fucking It's It's They're online sites That basically You spit into a cup You send your spit to them In the post And then You get online results That will break down Your heritage And your ancestry Right This is big business and it's a very new business because with DNA, you know, with, with scientific advances in DNA. And what's the name? It's called personal genomics. That's the name of the industry. Now, in 2001, the cost of, we'll say, finding a, a person's individual DNA, the cost of this in 2001 for one person would have been around 100 million to do that for one one person that would have meant you know a f- scientific fucking funding now in 2018 the cost of individual uh, genomes individual finding out your heritage to your DNA it's gone down to a grand it's a thousand euros how much it costs and there's companies like 23andMe and they're very very popular at the moment a lot of people are doing this and there's a couple of reasons kind of why people are into it. It's mostly an American thing, right? When I 
I first heard about these personal genome websites about five years ago, and it was the type of thing that all the Yanks would do, or an older member of your family would do, you know? Seven, ten years ago, when it was a bit more expensive, everyone in the family might chip in and one person would send off a cheek swab, do you know? But you, I, I tended to associate it with old Irish Americans wanting to find out how Irish they are, or whatever. But with the current kind of US climate, now, America's always fucking obsessed with race. But in the age of Trump, it's very, very evident. Both on the left and on the right, in, in the, under the greater umbrella of a controversial fucking word that I don't like using, but identity politics. Um, so you've got we'll say young groups like who would consider themselves the alt-right who let's face it are just fucking Nazis they believe the same shit the Nazis believed in they just have cool haircuts and hats or whatever and you know they're obsessed with that genetic purity they're you know they want that Aryan shit they want to find out what their white European heritage is so they are signing up to 23andMe to prove their whiteness then on the opposite end you've got the left who who, you know, there's not a lot of cultural capital in being white and young in America anymore. It doesn't make you particularly cool. So I'm guessing you've got liberal white kids who are dying to find out if they might be a little bit Native American or black. And then you've got young people of colour who want to celebrate their diversity and find out just how diverse they actually are. So all these groups are signing up for 23andMe at a young age to find out their DNA and heritage. Also... 23 and me are very much you know they promote a lot they, there's a lot of youtubers i've heard about 23 and me the company through a lot of youtubers that are sponsored by him you know travel travel youtubers in particular a guy called mark weens was he he was sponsored by ancestry.com i think but that industry and they're deliberately pitching it at young people basically also as well, with young wealthy Americans, young wealthy Americans do a kind of, like Americans are never really comfortable just being fucking American. They're always Polish American or Irish American or Asian American, you know, they're never just American. That That's a very American thing. And rich Americans, there's this thing in, in not Victorian times, but the one before, around 17th, 18th century, there was this thing that young people used to do called the Grand Tour where rich, wealthy, young people, when they got to about 19, would fuck off around the world to the great classical sites, such as Pompeii and the ruins of Greece, and they would get their education that way and then return back to their land at 23. Yanks do this. Wealthy Yanks, when they get to 19, they just go to Temple Bar and see all the 19-year-old Americans calling themselves Irish Americans, falling around the place drunk. They do this. So when you go to 23andMe's website, they have a specific kind of testing kit that will give you your specific uh, heritage, what countries your your genes came from, and then they tie that up with the ability to travel to those countries, you know? So it's big business, and it is very much taking advantage of the current political climate and people's obsession with race and identity and ethnicity. But the interesting... I mentioned earlier that 
it was 100 million per person in 2001. And it's a grand now. But if you go to 23andMe's website, I think it's like $129. If you want to get your DNA tested now, it's, I'm not fucking sponsored by this, by the way. Um, if you want to get tested for this now, it's about $100, $129. That is not a grand. So they're losing a lot of money on that, right? That's deliberate. The online personal genome stuff is it's it's economically it's what you'd call a, a loss leader product okay a loss leader product is a product that is how do you explain it it's a product it's sold beneath its market value to stimulate something else okay milk and bananas are loss leader products if you walk into a supermarket you'll find that milk and bananas are just stupidly cheap they're possibly sold who the fuck is texting me milk and bananas are sold at ridiculously cheap prices banana that quite unethical what cunts am i getting texted hold on i gotta turn off sorry milk and bananas let's stupidly cheap bananas quite unethically cheap because of what goes on in honduras and countries like that but these are known as last leader products the supermarket will sell you bananas and milk incredibly cheap because they understand that you are going to walk into the shop and spend money on other shit. Maybe a 60 euro bottle of fucking gin. So that's a last leader product. Um, Amazon Kindle. Like an Amazon Kindle is a pretty good fucking tablet. They're, they're quite good and they cost about 60 quid. Amazon are losing money on the physical Kindle because they know they're going to make that money back on the books that you buy. A Kindle book is a tenner. You're going to fill it up. They'll make their money back. To be honest, this fucking podcast, I work on a last leader model. I do this podcast for free. There's 250,000 of you listening. But a small percentage of that gives me money every month through Patreon and that helps me to earn a living. So this podcast is a last leader. But why are, you know, the genetic industry, the heritage, genetic heritage industry, why would they be operating in a last leader fucking uh, model? What do they want? Well, what they want is your genetic data. And this is where it gets spicy. This is where we're going to veer into fucking conspiracy theory territory, lads. And I want you to take it with a pinch of salt. And I want you to understand that this podcast is essentially just fucking entertainment. I'm not Alex Jones. I'm not a lunatic. A conspiracy theory is the most interesting story, not the most truthful one. So let's go into conspiracy theory territory. Why do 23andMe want our genetic data? Why are they willing to lose money on DNA tests? What's the big payoff? And when is the big payoff going to happen? Now the importance of data as a word, it's it's been very evident in the news this year in particular, um, with, with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, you know, and as well we've a law in Europe now called the GDPR, which you know protects your data. But data is it's your online, it's your online fucking everything. 
that, you know, nothing is free online. For the past 15 years, we've been experiencing it as free. Like, if you think of your fucking smartphone and what it can do, there's a camera on there. There's, it is limitless with the amount of apps. And most of these apps are free. And we're there going, fuck it, look at all this free shit. Wow, it's not free. You sign an agreement that basically says, take all of my data. And that data is... It's the photographs you take. It's everything you write. It's listening to you on the fucking... On the microphone of of your phone. It is everything about you. And this data is then sold to advertising companies. So that the advertising companies can best correctly advertise to you. Very shortly. Actually, let's do it now. Where the fuck is my ocarina? I can't find the ocarina, lads. We're going to have an ocarina pause now. I don't have the ocarina, so I've got a bit of metal and uh, a pen. We're going to have a short pause for a digital advert right now, okay? Now, if you hear a digital advert, your digital advert is going to be different to the digital advert of somebody else because the company, Acast, have purchased your data from Google or from Facebook or whatever and you're going to get an advert that is targeted just to you depending on your interests on what you've spoken about around your phone what what podcasts you've listened to what you posted about last week where you were you know if you went to River Island last week and spent half an hour in there you might get an ad for River Island but we're going to have a pause now for digital advert that's going to come in and it's going to be targeted just to you based on your data that has through your apps that has been sold to advertisers so here's the pause oh that sounds shit hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A hoting noise. Haven't done that since I was about fucking 14. So there should have been a digital advert in there. And it was your data, okay? So that's... uh, Your data is what... Swayed the fucking... You know, our data caused Brexit. Our data caused the election of Donald Trump. Because they... The election campaigns went to a company called Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica took data that like Facebook was selling or whatever was breaching 
data that was supposed to be used just just to sell you products, okay? Because sometimes there's a good side to it. I like opening up my Instagram and being recommended products that I'm actually interested in. I like that. But with Cambridge Analytica, it's a company that took the same data that should be used to advertise you goods and services, and instead they used it to advance political campaigns. So if you looked, if, if your data suggested that you were going to vote Hillary, Hillary Clinton, Trump targeted you with, with specific shit. Same with Brexit. If you were going to vote no for Brexit, the pro-Brexit campaign targeted you specifically with some shit that would change your mind. And they did it through Facebook, they did it through Google, all of this. That's your data. So 23andMe, a company that is... You're spitting into a fucking cup and giving them your DNA. That's what you're doing. You are giving them your personal DNA, the blueprint for your body. They are mining and collecting this data, okay? Genetic fucking data. And, for instance, uh, two years ago, they partnered, I think it was 300 million, they partnered with uh, GlaxoSmithKline Pharmaceuticals. So, GlaxoSmithKline, who make um, medicine, are now using the genetic data of everyone who's used 23andMe to create medicines specific, either to use the DNA as research or to create tailor-made medicines. Doesn't sound too bad, right? But where it gets kind of shifty is, like I remember in 2006, lads, conspiracy theories flying around Facebook saying, oh, Facebook is actually, it's a CIA plan to gather everyone's identities. And if you said that in 2006, you were considered a lunatic. But it did turn out to actually be true. Through the NSA, the way that the NSA used Facebook data and Google data, it turned out to actually be true. If you really want to go further, if you look at the the roots of Google, going back to Silicon Valley in 94, 95, the two lads who founded Google, um, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, like they would have when they were in Silicon Valley and when they were in, in college they were benefiting from funding grants that came from the CIA and the NSA they were benefiting from these grants and the to develop kind of surveillance software and this surveillance software you know no one would have thought that it was going to be used on the American people themselves but it turns out it was so even the roots of Google if you stretch it long enough you can see it's it's original mechanics can be traced to covert government fucking funding so recent history has objectively showed us that our data is not being used responsibly it's not just being used to improve our lives and, and make you know advertise to us better it's being used against us through political means or whatever, through breaches and whatever, that is never really safe. So Sergey Bring, who founded Google, what if I told you that the woman who founded Twenty Three and Me, the genetic company, what if I told you she was married to Sergey Bring, who runs Google? They're now divorced, but they were fucking married. So now you've got 
this company 23andMe, who's got all of our DNA, so we can find our heritage, married to the CEO of Google. Her sister is the CEO of YouTube, also owned by Google. That's where it starts to get a bit, little bit fishy. We know that 23andMe are selling data to pharmaceutical companies. Now this is where it starts getting very boiling hot. In 2009, 23andMe, they filed a fucking patent. And the patent that they filed was for gamete donor selections, right? Now, I don't, I know nothing about fucking genetics, but what, what I can tell you that is, is it was basically designer babies, okay? And they were called out on it by the Center for Genetics and Society, saying, can you please retract this patent for using the data from 23andMe for designer babies. What that means is... Now, designer babies can be a good or bad thing. We already have a thing called genetic counselling. There are certain diseases, we'll say. Um, Huntington's disease, for example, or cystic fibrosis that are genetically inherited. And wouldn't it be great if they could be eradicated? A designer baby would allow... What it what it suggests is that twenty three and me are planning on a service in fifteen years or twenty years or whatever, where people with enough money can search ideally for the right sperm or the right egg for their child, so that when the child is born, they can do positive things such as you know eradicate its chance of of certain cancers or diseases, but also you know make it a certain make the child a certain height when it grows up or change its skin colour or hair colour or whatever that's where it starts to get iffy now you might say sure that's that person's business do you know we do it with dogs what if someone wants to have a fucking six foot seven brown haired child with massive ankles or whatever you do so what that's their business where it gets dodgy is only the most, only the richest people will be able to afford that. And if designer babies become a thing, you end up with the potentiality for genetic discrimination. Imagine a world, and we kind of have it now a little bit, but not as extreme. But imagine a world where diseases are only things that affect the poor. That you have now have a, an elite ruling class that are not just different to us economically, but genetically. That's a bit dystopian. I'm not into that. So why the fuck are 23 and me filing patents for some designer baby shit? That's a bit freaky, lads. That's a real thing. So how am I kind of associating this with the gin? You know, the gin. Whiskey. In 30 years' time. You know? Well, this is a kind of a theory that's hopping around online. Something that's... I kind of I, I think it's possible. I think this is possible. One of the hottest uh, technologies at the moment that they're making advances in, uh, especially using stem cells. Now this relates back to to. Do you remember? I spoke about uh, the theory of biocentrism about five or six podcasts back. The Robert Lanza, the stem cell man, the guy who's sixty and looks forty, the fella who. I th- his his main kind of achievement in stem cell research was to discover 
the parts of DNA that's responsible for aging. That's a huge thing right now. Finding out how do we age and where in our personal DNA is the aging process triggered. There's a theory that what 23andMe are doing right now, the reason that, you know, this heritage technology, like I said, it's something you associate with older people. You think of the your granddad going, I'd love to find out where we came from. But they're targeting it deliberately. 23andMe are looking for an audience that are 19, 20, 21. They're sponsoring YouTubers, you know. Um, I'm not saying they're taking advantage of identity politics, but it's certainly working in their favour. Young people online who don't have a grand to spend on, on their DNA analysis, but they do have $100, and that's why 23andMe are operating at a loss. This is where I think the big payoff is going to be. I think if everyone is getting their DNA tested now while they're young, in their early 20s, right? In 30, 40 years' time, the percentage of those people that become very wealthy, the technology will exist for those people to reverse their aging process. And in order to do this, what's needed is their actual DNA from when they were younger. And I think that's what it's going to be. You're going to have super wealthy people who can go back to being 23 years of fucking age in 30, 40 years' time. I know it sounds nuts, but like 25 fucking years ago, like I'm, I'm old enough to remember a cartoon called Inspector Gadget. And that was about 25 years ago. And in Inspector Gadget, I remember looking at it as a little kid and the girl in it, she used to have a book and she'd open up the book and in this book there was a video screen and on this video screen in her book she had access to all the information in the world. If she wanted to find out about cheetahs, she would open her book and a video about cheetahs would play. This, when I saw it as a kid or even when the adults around me saw it, was nuts. You know, it's like, no way, you can't have a book that has all the information in the world with videos of cheetahs. Well, we have it now. It's called your fucking iPhone. You're listening to this podcast on it. So that was 25 years ago. A complete leap in technology that we thought was impossible is now part of our everyday lives. The research into the DNA, our DNA and how it ages is happening right now. And 23andMe, like on top of that, Google have invested like fucking millions into this company. Millions. So the people who have shown themselves to understand the future and to invest in the importance of data, they're already pumping their fucking money into this genetic heritage stuff. And this genetic heritage companies are farming our data and our DNA. So I think that's what the payoff is. They're going to be able to reverse the aging process for the richest people. And probably... Now I'm going to go mad spicy. Now I'm talking out of my hall, lads. I think it's going to be on Mars. Because throw a bit of Elon Musk into the mix. Let's spice it up with some Elon, with some Musk. The richest people are going to fuck off to Mars in the next 50 years. And we're going to be stuck down here with our rising sea levels and irradiated deserts and the ozone layer depleted and the soil bleached. 
and a small amount of rich people are going to be able to travel to Mars. Mars will be terraformed and they'll start colonies there and they'll live there. And these people will be able to live very, very long and stay young for very, very long. Now let's fucking, the pot is boiling over now, lads, right? There's steam coming out of this pot and it is boiling and it's pouring all over the kitchen floor and I've gone mad and I'm smearing myself with shit. That's how hot this take is, right? Let's look at a potential future using genetic data mining where you've got people living on Mars and they're living to be a thousand years old, right? Now let's go Jungian with that, okay? What is that story? It's the fucking Garden of Eden. What happened in the Garden of Eden, right? Garden of Eden, it was this perfect, beautiful land where there weren't that many people and everyone was beautiful and everyone lived to be a thousand years old. Adam and Eve got where, you know, they were going to live to be like a thousand years old as long as they want until original sin came along. Now let's look at fucking, there's steam all over the kitchen now, let's. The neighbours are knocking on the wall. Now let's bring in the bizarre cyclical nature of time and a bit of Carl Jung, okay? If we take time as a construct, is it possible that the archetypal story, you know, that the deep within the collective unconscious, the story of the Garden of Eden, is not the story of human origin, but through the cyclical, bizarre nature of time, actually stuck in our DNA the story of where we're ultimately going to go which would be Mars with people living forever and they've escaped we'll say the Ark Noah's Ark the Earth is going to turn into Noah's Ark rising sea levels and we know this in, in our collective unconscious but it's not our origin it's our future now that is some hot <coughs> boiling hot takes I choked on my vape please don't take me seriously cause uh, that's some Alex Jones shit that's just me riffing that's that's me talking out of my arse and uh, trying to be entertaining and g- getting a good crack out of it so please don't go to your colleagues and your loved ones or your next door neighbour and tell them have you heard Blind Boy's Theory have you heard his theory that if you spit into an envelope and send it to America, we'll all end up on Mars? We'll all end up on Mars as tall giants until someone eats a snake. And it's because of the cyclical nature of time. Please don't tell people on the internet that that's what I'm saying. Because I'm not. I'm just presenting it as an interesting story with a few possibilities. I don't believe it. Alright, I'm just trying to fill up some space. I haven't had time to fucking advertise the bastard on Patreon. Look at that, I've ranted so long, it's a fucking hour. This podcast is supported <coughs> supported by a Patreon page, alright? Um, I do the podcast for free. On the last leader model. I give f- five hours a week is how much podcast I put out. And you're free to listen to it for free if you like. But if you really enjoyed it and you want to support me as an artist, give me the price of a pint once a month or the price of a cup of coffee and go to patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast if you want to do this and if you don't want to do it 
if you don't want to give me money, that's fucking grand. You can listen for free. It's a socialistic model. And if you can afford to give me the money as well, remember, you're paying for someone who can't afford it as well, which I like that too. But p- please do if you can. I really appreciate it, and it helps me to earn a living and keep doing it. So I'll leave you go, you gorgeous, delicious boys and girls. I hope you enjoyed that. That was one of the silliest fucking podcasts I've done in a while, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really enjoyed that now. I I needed a fucking release of a hot take like that. Like a pot of steam boiling, you know? God bless, Yurt. Have a tremendous week. Be compassionate to yourself. Uh, Throw a bit of compassion to other people. And back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, if people are too harshly critiquing you, extend compassion to them as well. Because you'll grow from that. Don't roll around in the mud with them. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 